desde la cuarentena en Barcelona y a base de audios de WhatsApp, BCNMS contacta con emprendedores, pymes, autónomos, creativos y amigos para preguntarles qué tal lo llevan, cómo les está afectando el coronavirus y cómo creen que saldremos de esta. Mes Radio. My name is Carlos El Clos. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for Government and Public Policy at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. I'm currently working on a European Research Council-funded project called Property and Democratic Citizenship, where we look at different property relations in the U.S. and Europe and how they shape our lives uh, politically and socially. Um, so that's currently what I'm working on. I'm also an associate researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs, otherwise known as CIDOB where I've been working on a project on refugee housing in, in Catalonia. Have you seen those, um, those research projects, those jobs, those fields affected or informed in any way by the current coronavirus crisis? So I've long been on one of the more precarious ends of the labor market, um, Research in Spain uh, has not been treated well in the years since the since austerity was implemented and since the last economic crisis. Um, but actually, I'm in this case, I'm I'm fairly fortunate in the sense that I can still receive a salary, and because I work primarily with you know doing data analysis, um, I can telework with relative ease. There's a component of my research that had to do with field work, with face-to-face -face interviews, um, which has had to change, you know, I mean, that's on hiatus on my end uh, for the most part. And, and actually in our research project in particular, there's been two kind of big changes. On the one hand, um, you know, there's, we have researchers in five different countries that are doing participant observation and field work um, uh, that involves a lot of face-to-face -face interaction and all this, and all this is gone. Um, that What I mean is, that, uh, for the time being, you can't carry out face-to-face -face interviews, and you can't, um, you can't do the type of, you know, very contact-heavy, uh, very close, very socially proximate um, field work that that you need to to inform ethnographic study. Um, Also, you know, you can't cross borders anymore. Uh, so that's, that's been made quite difficult. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, the subject of our research has suffered a tremendous shock right now, right? So if we focus on property relations and, and what your experience is as a, as a citizen, well, you know, when we're all confined in our homes and, you know, we're just kind of, responding to what uh, what government's doing in a, in a state of emergency. And we're all, you know, um, very, very, very much paying attention to all of these government decisions. And they have so much bearing on our lives uh, from our homes. You know, this is a this is this is not something that we were expecting necessarily when we set out to do the project, when we, when we set out to do the project, we were looking at a housing crisis that was taking place during a period of economic growth. Now we have an unprecedented crisis. Everyone says that it's the most profound crisis since World War II for countries in the global north. And yeah, we're having to rethink a lot of how we approach what we're looking at. You're really just teeing up the next question for me. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this new reality, uh, the property 
reality globally or Europe. And then, of course, we want to know about Barcelona being a local paper. Um, and while that's a huge, huge question, uh, maybe just tell me what you think is most worrying. Um, what is the most important uh, aspect of it or what are the biggest concerns, in your opinion, for us here? Well, you know, we have to see how it plays out. Um, there's a tendency to talk about markets and especially property markets as, you know, these very automatic things that we have to respond to. But of course, you know, they're, they're very, they're, they're like anything else on this planet. They're very political and how we respond to them, um, politically, socially, culturally, um, will shape the markets. Um, what we allow to be done is kind of, you know, what, what determines outcomes. I mean, we're seeing that now, right? Like when people don't go to work, uh, GDP falls by, you know, many, many, many percentage points instead of growing, uh, emissions fall, things like that. Right. Um, property values can fall too. Um, and you know, uh, we're seeing a lot of measures taken by governments to, you know, some places are, are suspending rent, uh, or free, you know, um, declaring rent moratoria, mortgage moratoria, freezing, uh, freezing rent in some cases, you know, um, and all these possibilities are out there that, that we would not have, um, considered, you know, just, just a few months ago. Um, rent strikes are taking place or being organized internationally. Uh, there's a rent strike being organized in Barcelona and, uh, and all over Spain. Uh, there's rent strikes being organized in Greece. There's rent strikes being organized, um, in the United States. Um, so I think one of the things that's happening in the current situation is that we're, we're seeing, you know, previous pathologies, if you will, uh, in the housing, uh, sector, uh, really, you know, uh, really they're, they're made very, very, very visible by this, this situation. So what do I think is going to happen? Well, I, you know, I think one of the, the big risks, let's say is, and, and what seems to be playing out is that, you know, there's, there's a lot of, properties out there that are in the hands of like, you know, small landlords and so on. I think a lot of them are probably panic selling or, or panicking, getting, getting rid of stuff. Uh, and when things like that happen, the big players consolidate. So the Blackstones of the world, um, all of these large hedge funds are already talking about these multi-billion dollar investments, um, all these multi-billion dollar, you know, uh, you know, bags of money that they're just waiting to deploy in different property markets. I think that's one of the things that's definitely, uh, definitely playing out globally. Um, more locally, you know, Spain's actually, you know, ha has its history of housing crises. Uh, the economy depends very heavily on what's happening in the housing sector here. Uh, and, and its model is, you know, quite dysfunctional. Um, it's, it's dysfunctional, not just, you know, because of its archaic mortgage laws or because of, you know, Airbnb and the role of tourism here, but also, you know, there's one aspect I think that's quite interesting, uh, uh, in Spain that a lot of folks have, have been talking about recently. That aspect is the high proportion of households, uh, you know, everyday households that receive some income from rent. So between 2004 and 2018, the percentage of households that get some kind of money from rent, not just in terms of housing, but from, you know, a plot of land or a parking spot as well, but it's 
mostly housing. Um, the percentage uh, has risen from about 5% of households to 14% of households. That's all the more striking when you consider that at the level of, you know, at the country level, um, private market tenants, so tenants that don't get, um, you know, aren't in the very small number of social housing units in Spain, um, they're also about 14% of households. Um, so they're treated kind of like symmetrically, right? So it's like they're, they're just the same proportion of the population, but they're proportions of the population that have a very, very deep inequality between them. Um, one in, in an article that I published for, uh, published with, in an article that I published in the, the Ariara with a colleague of mine, Lorenzo Vidal, we point out that um, even though the proportion of households are fairly similar, um, landlord households, if we want to call them that, uh, make considerably more than tenant households. Um, tenant households had a median, in- median income um, around 22,000 euros, whereas landlord households, when, they, when you take away what they make from rent, uh, have a median income of about 36,000, uh, or sorry, 38,000 uh, euros, um, which is a decent salary in Spain. It's not great, but it's it's a decent salary, um, but it's substantially more than than tenant households. So the effects, if, you know, if, if the rent strike had 100%, uh, you know, uh, if 100% of people followed the rent strike, you know, this would kind of give you an indication of the average outcome. But there's another trick there, which is, you know, one thing is how many households in Spain are getting some income from rent. Um, it's a very different question to say, what percentage of the housing stock do they have? And, you know, the Spanish government has been throwing around this number uh, of 85%. You know, 85% of, of Spain's housing is... is uh, is owned by small property holders, you know, and, and they need this money to, to go to make it month to month. Um, no one knows where this figure comes from, right? We, we, we don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that it's necessarily false. I'm just saying I, I never know what their, what data they're citing. What we do know, the only place where we have this data where it's public is the uh, Observatory de la Vitacha de Barcelona, um, the Housing Observatory of Barcelona, uh, which shows that over 30% of Barcelona's housing stock is definitely in the hands of uh, large entities, right? Um, so what does this mean? This means that actually in terms of property values, right, um, especially in terms of rent, right, um, and, and, and the whole time when I'm giving these figures, I'm talking about the rental housing, right? Um, the, you know, small, land, small landlords actually don't have as much sway over over the market as these large corporations, right? Because it's one actor or two or, you know, 10 that have sway over, you know, thousands and thousands of, of units in, in a given area. And I think this is, this is a really big problem um, because Spain does not have a very large public housing stock uh, or social housing stock that can sort of set a floor uh, in a meaningful way for, for rent and say like, okay, this is the, this is the bare minimum that you should expect, um, 
at this price, right? Like just Spain does not have the capacity to do that. And, you know, Spain has a lot more of these small landlords than, than it's, than it's European neighbors. And the reason Spain has a lot more small landlords is because Spain has what's known as a familistic housing regime that, that is very much tied to a familistic welfare state. Uh, what is a familistic welfare state and what is a familistic housing regime? It means that, um, you know, most of our social welfare or our ability to house ourselves, right, uh, is not provided by, by a proper welfare state. Rather, the welfare state plans around families as the way through which a lot of basic welfare functions are, are, are guaranteed, right? Um, so what does this mean in terms of housing? It means that, you know, inheritance of housing plays a very, very large role in the housing, uh, in the housing market. Uh, and this is very, very characteristic of Southern European countries. So, um, Italy's got a similar situation and Greece has a, a similar situation. Um, and this has really, really, really profound implica implications for, for stuff like COVID, right? So, um, one of the things that we know about COVID and it's very high mortality in countries like Spain, um, is that it the mortality rate seems to be higher in countries that have a high degree of intergenerational contact that is contact between you know uh working age people for instance uh or even younger people and people that are over 65 who are very at risk right um so francesco bilari and other demographers have have made it a point to say you know uh this this might be a really strong explanation of why they they have such mortality in italy and spain um, and some people, you know, have, have thought about this and thought like, oh, wow, you know, so Spain's intergenerational solidarity is actually contributing to its high mortality. It's a risk factor. Um, but I view this as a, as a different, uh, perspective. I don't see this intergenerational solidarity necessarily as like this cultural trait that, you know, in Spain, we love our parents and our grandparents more than, than in other countries. Um, I see this as a problem of housing exclusion on the lower end of the, of the age distribution. The reason that there are so many intergeneration, there is so much intergenerational contact in Spain is precisely because young people can't get out of their parents' house because they, there are a lot of precarious jobs out there, as you well know, um, or a lot of better said, a lot of the jobs out there are precarious and the rental market is vastly overpriced, vastly overpriced and a very, very, very low quality. Um, so this has created a situation where, you know, um, it's actually a source of uh, higher mortality in a situation like the COVID crisis. Wow, that, that opens so many questions for me, but I think they're for another interview. Like if, um, if familial solidarity weren't such a thing here, uh, would people have fought more to, for a more just housing system and for better jobs and for salaries that actually rise with everything else. But we'll leave that aside. I want to tie in what you said at the end with what you said at the beginning of this last answer. Um, so the Blackstones and the hedge funds and the rest, people with a lot of money and, and liquidity coming in and taking advantage of a crisis to buy up. Uh, and that combined with Spain's relatively high percentage rate of small family um, property owners 
I mean, it sounds like a recipe for disaster. We're just going to dismantle that. Well, we aren't. But Blackstone and Friends, um, kind of vulture funds, as they've been called here, are going to dismantle that enseguida. Well, they can dismantle it if we let them. Um, and I'm always stressing this. You know, this is this is a political issue. And um, and I say if we let them, I could also say if the government lets them. Um, you know, presumably right now the government has you know, at least part of it comes from Spain's very, very strong housing movements. Um, this, the housing struggles in Spain, you know, in the in the last crisis have been an example for con- countries all over the world. Um, they were very, very strong. Um, our mayor in Barcelona, you know, was was the de facto leader of that movement. And it had very strong political consequences. But, you know, Theoretically, the reason we don't have better housing laws right now is because there was a right wing party in power all of this time. Well, now we have a left wing government, theoretically, uh, that can show us how this can be done. Um, so will they let Blackstone, um, take over, you know, these, uh, th- this, th- this housing? Um, that, that's, that's the real question. Uh, distressed homeowners are going to be right for the, p- the picking. I just saw an, a news item in El Confidencial that was reporting that there's been a 12% drop in investment in the housing market in this last trimester due to COVID. So, so you know, that, that means that people are going to be looking to sell while they can still make a, you know, a profit um, on, on, you know, on the, a profit relative to the mortgage that they had to take out, which may have been overpriced, right? So, so Blackstone and these guys are the ones that can, you know, uh, swoop in and buy large, uh, large quantities of housing. Um, and for them, it'll be at a low price and so on. So, so the question is what's going to be done with this? Um, I think that the government needs to use this situation to dramatically expand the, um, public housing stock or the social housing stock. Um, and there are different formulas for doing that. Um, but I think they need to do that. I think they need to eliminate a lot of the, you know, fiscal advantages, let's say, that uh, real estate investment trusts have in Spain, uh, where a great deal of their activity is tax exempt, for instance. Um, so so this is going to be a really, really big political issue, um, especially you know, as some homeowners might be tempted to, uh, to just rent out at higher prices, right. Um, instead of selling or something like that. Right. So, so we don't really know what, what's, what's going to happen, but it needs to be shaped politically and we're going to need a very large scale, uh, bottom up organization, uh, to handle this. And it will probably have to be even bigger than Spain's already very big and very, you know, effective housing movement, uh, and not just bigger in terms of mass, but, you know, they're going to have to be, the government's going to have to be more porous to their, uh, more receptive to their demands. And that means that the housing movements are going to have to be more forceful, um, you know, make political use of squatting, make, uh, political use of, uh, a lot of direct action, right? Uh, this, this is going to have to be, a big, big issue, not just in Spain, but globally. So, so yeah, if, if we want, you know, uh, if we want Blackstone and these guys to not be 
our literal lords, you know, the lords of the land beneath us, uh, we're going to have to, we're going to have to stand up and the government's going to have to pick a side. Oh, you mentioned the word that shall not be named squatting. That's not going to go over very well with, uh, an international public, uh, was not going to go over well with a national public. Maybe Barcelona is a little bit more understanding, but woof, you're a brave man. Are you a homeowner? Nope, I am not a homeowner. I'm a tenant. Um, yeah. If you were a homeowner and if you were a part of the, let's say, the 15% small family homeowner public, what would you do or what would your advice be to them? And yeah, squatting. A lot of people don't like squatting. Um, squatters are, are very, very stigmatized. Uh, it's 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 very interesting because... Um, you know, I, I I pay attention to how they are how squatting is problematized in in Spain, um, in the U.S. I mean, that's not even you know it's not even really considered much more than you know it's considered a plague much in the same way as as cockroaches might be. Um, but in Spain, since I've been here anyway, well, there's been kind of a a permanent kind of lingering housing crisis. Um, and at the same time, uh, you know, when I've seen whenever the left is in government, you know, on those daytime television shows that pose as news, um, whenever the left is in government, they start to do a lot of, you know, stories on, on squatting and present them as this nightmarish, you know, dirty, dangerous, uh, collective. But the fact of the matter is that there are, thousands of people in this country that, um, that, that squat out of necessity, um, just, you know, just to have a roof over their heads. And, um, and in Spain, you know, uh, they've been for years trying to make evictions of squatters more difficult, but, you know, it, the reason it's difficult is because, it, you know, there's a constitutional right to housing in Spain as well. There should be and there should be in other places. Um, so I, I, you know, squatting is very frequently posed as a sort of as a problem of, you know, urban decay. Um, but I often, especially how it's done in Spain, I see it as a as a form of direct action and very, very politicized, very political action. Uh, used to revive uh, and breathe life back into uh, decayed uh, property, decayed spaces. To homeowners, you know, I'd, I'd like to be a homeowner myself. Um, I, I, I just don't have the savings. In I think starting in 2013, there was the Basel III Agreement, which restricted lending conditions uh, precisely because you know in the in the in the previous crisis and the buildup to the global financial crisis they were just lending willy-nilly uh, on purpose right to generate a lot of a lot of profit and they saw that this was a problem and they and they changed lending conditions but so so fewer people have been able to become homeowners this was a very conscious decision to make lending a little bit safer on the one hand, but also to change housing markets in Spain's was definitely affected. To homeowners, I would, I would say that they were right to organize in, 
in the 2008-2009 crisis against, you know, the abusive mortgages that that they that they received, um, these very, very risky mortgages, these very securitized mortgages that led to a lot of foreclosures and evictions and a lot of a lot of strife. If if we get into a situation in this crisis that's similar to that one, I think they should mobilize harder in order to demand that instead of bailing out banks, they bail out the homeowners. A lot of people said, you know, why why should the bank who should have never, you know, should never have given me this loan in the first place and never should have charged me the high interest rates they were charging and all of these kinds of abusive practices, why should they get bailed out? And then the banks argued, you know, well, there's just a lot of people that shouldn't have shouldn't own their homes that got homes. And if you bail them out, then they get homes, you know, as if that's this horrible, horrible thing. I am on the side of homeowners there. I think that, um, you know, the risk was taken on by the banks. They lost. Homeowners could have won, but the government decided to do what they did and bail out the banks. I think that memory needs to stay uh, for homeowners today, um, especially if, if things play out similarly. Now, landlording is very, very different than homeowning. And one of the things that Blackstone and these big funds are doing is using small landlords and homeowners to some extent, but mostly landlords, small ones to say, look, my interests are your interests. You know, if, if I can't evict quickly, that means you can't evict quickly. Uh, if I don't get bailed out, that means you can't be bailed out. So they, they, they play this game, this political game of aligning the interests of small landlords with the big ones when I'm quite certain that the really small landlords, um, the ones that, you know, like a retired person that has, you know, an inherited property that they rent out in order to supplement their very meager pensions, that person's a lot closer to a tenant um, or, or a or an underwater homeowner than to Blackstone. But the law being what it is and property being legislated the way it is, um, Blackstone abuses this kind of stuff in order to align their interests. Um, now, to landlords who are making a killing off of uh, landlording, off of properties that they just own and rent out, I would have a very different message. I think it was an, either an ABC or El Español. The other day, I saw a headline uh, and an article with a with a with a landlord who was saying, you know, because of this crisis and because people are scared to rent, you know, I'm out seven thousand euros a month from two properties. You know, what am I supposed to do? Well, my answer to that person is, get a job. Okay, just get a job. Why should everybody else have to toil for you? to make 7,000 euros a month off of two properties. Give me a break. Um, I have no sympathy for that. None. Um, you know, David Ricardo and even Adam Smith, you know, the, the, the founding father of capitalism as, as, as it's, you know, uh, mythologized, let's say, 
the only tax that they were really, really, really in favor of was a property tax because they, they, they realized that property values are inherently parasitic. Why are they inherently parasitic? Because you, if you own a plot of land or a house on a plot of land, the reason that its value goes up isn't really because of what you do to it is because of what's produced around it, right? Which everybody is putting into. And when property taxes go up, you are actually siphoning off that value. Um, so Adam Smith was, and, and David Ricardo were very much in favor of property taxes in order to redistribute wealth that is produced collectively. All right. And for the last question, we're going to go, we're going to go bigger. We're going to take you out of your wheelhouse, so to speak, and away from your area of expertise. And we're going to ask you how this crisis, how COVID-19 and how the current reality is going to change us, you society. That's definitely the big question. And I guess my short answer is that I, that I, that I hope we're the ones to decide how we change. Right. Um, I think that's just, you know, where I'm at personally, politically, socially, culturally, I think we're still deciding it. And we've seen a lot of things these days. We've seen what society needs at a very basic level to function on the one hand. Um, so we know we need some essential services. We need some basic infrastructures, right? Daily life just right now requires certain infrastructures. And we don't treat the people that, that provide those infrastructures equally or even well. I hope we come out of this with a deeper appreciation of what essential workers do. Um, of who we expose to certain risks, um, a deeper appreciation of the the differences in our abilities to protect ourselves from certain risks. I, so I hope that on one level, um, and that's not just a political thing; it's a, it's like a personal and a spiritual thing, um, and a deeper contemplation of what life means. I hope I hope we understand that you know we are part of life on this planet, and that things like this virus are, you know, very difficult to, they're impossible to extract from our daily lives. You know, um, these risks are always there, which is why we can't be so reckless with life on this planet. We can't treat life like shit. Um, you know, we can think we're the highest form of intelligence on this planet, but a virus, which is one of the, you know, most basic forms of, I mean, it's not even clear what it is, you know, but it's certainly doesn't seem to be a form of intelligence uh, that can bring us to our knees, you know, um, and that can bring down our entire civilization. So I hope we understand how fragile we are and how much uh, we depend on other lives, other forms of life on this planet, certainly. Um, so, yeah. That's, I, I guess that's where I'd leave it. Um, there's a lot more, uh, but I think that's, that's the basic level. Very cool. Um, I also hope that we realize that 
Carlos, thank you very much for participating, for teaching us so much, for talking it through. Um, fascinating to hear such a well-informed and detailed and well-expressed perspective on something so concrete and important such as property in this current crisis. Fascinating. So from everybody at BCNMS, we send you big hugs. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, and let's keep talking. The other thing I'd say is that on the one hand, we've seen what makes life function. Uh, on the other hand, we've seen what makes life worth living, right? And that has to do with social life, with, with our ability to, to, you know, be in contact with one another, to make culture happen. You know, these are the things that have, that have made the experience tolerable. Um, in some cases, or intolerable, the absence of them, the the absence of these things, the absence of social contact and social relations has made it intolerable in some cases too. So, you know, I, I, I would just hope we take some of these things to heart. Likewise, thanks for having me, man. It was fun. And I hope publications like Beth NMS manage to stay afloat, man. Uh, we, you know, the city really needs a publication like that. And uh, it would be a shame, be a real shame for people not to understand the, the value of that. So, yeah. Mes Radio. 